that's what I would have learned in Nephilim Sunday School? Fascinating. This is Allie Daniels, and you're listening to Antimony. Episode 11, Formaldehyde. Time to follow up on Miss Leora's lead. According to the paper she had given me, Dr. Ellis's office was in the Zoology Museum, down the street from where the other GYSP professors had their offices. Delani wanted to see this museum and came along. When she first suggested coming with me, I resisted. Miss Leora told me to go see Dr. Ellis. She didn't say anything about bringing Delani. If Dr. Ellis found out she had tagged along, maybe he wouldn't like it and wouldn't give me crucial information. Maybe Dr. Ellis would also end up incinerated, like Dr. Cannon probably was, if I didn't follow her instructions. But maybe I was trying out the idea Dr. Gregory had planted, that I might be too dependent on my new friends. If Delani wanted to see the Zoology Museum, she didn't have to use my meeting as an excuse. I was just about to tell her I wanted to go by myself when she asked if she could have some of my intimity. Her supply was running low, and she hadn't had a chance to ask Rachel to get her some from the lab. I'm running low, too. I can't help you. Oh, okay. No problem. I can get some from Rachel for you, too. So shouldn't we be leaving now for your appointment? When the lie first came out of my mouth, I felt a jolt of elation. Same when I first heard her response. She believed me. But just as quickly, a bloom of shame welled up inside me. Why did I do it? Was this another part of trying on Dr. Gregory's new identity for me? I had been mulling over Xanthi's comment about being a realm crosser. Dr. Gregory said it had to do with crossing boundaries between the past and the present, but suddenly I wondered if it also meant I had the potential to cross from truth to fiction easily. My face got hot as I thought about Delani's kind offer to help me out in response to my falsehood. You're right, Delani. It's time to go. While I scanned the list of names and office numbers on the wall by the museum's front desk, Delani looked through the brochure of exhibits and museum map. I didn't see Dr. Ellis's name anywhere on the directory. In fact, it seemed that most of the offices in the building belonged not to professors, but to the cleaning staff. The security guard at the front desk asked if she could help us find something. An exhibit, perhaps. Or are you here about the taxidermy job? 
we're looking for someone. Dr. Ellis, can you tell me how to get to his office? The security guard looked like a friendly pastry chef who would have been more at home in an apron than the uniform she was squished into. Her gray hair was pulled up in a bun and her green eyes twinkled. I looked at her badge. Miss Mary Healy, it said. She seemed happy to help and even more to chat. Basement level. Get off the elevator. Go straight to the end, past the off-exhibit specimens. When you get to the giant squid, turn left. His door's the last one in the hall. Giant squid? Delani put down the brochure. She came over and stood with me in front of the desk. Yes. The lighting is terrible down there, but you'll recognize the long glass cylinder. Take a look. Actually, since you have a reason to be down there, take a gander at what else is there if you have a strong stomach. It's all stuff no longer on display. Items offensive to the public. What did the squid do to offend the public? Oh, That one's just out of date. But most of the other stuff down there, that's what's offensive to the public. It's poor, monstrous creatures. Experiments. None of them lived, of course, but they kept them just the same. Hybridization, they called it. I call it desecration. Hybridization? As in crossing two species? Exactly. You know, made a horse with a donkey and get a mule. That's one thing. Although, even a mule isn't quite right. Infertile, you know. But they were trying all kinds of strange things. Down there, there's a monkey they mated with a bird. You'll see it if you look. Poor little thing never came to term but you can see the little nubs of wings on its back. There's a fish, too. They made it with a dog. Looks like a hairless puppy with long ears, gills, and a fin on its back. What they were after with that one, heaven only knows. They were trying to mix things that don't even belong in the same realm, let alone making babies together. It's unnatural, it is. I wasn't sure which I felt more strongly. The desire to see these things? Or the urge to grab Delani's hand and run from the building right now? Curiosity won out. Who did the experiments? And why did they keep them if they didn't work? Well, it was some time ago, my dear, back in the early 1900s. But, you know, it was the Gregory family. Same folks running the program over at the Divinity School. Same program your Dr. Ellis is part of. Those poor abominations were on display in the museum gallery for a short time. But they were taken down to the basement when too many parents complained their children were having nightmares. Pathetic little monstrous creatures. But do take a look, my dears. You've never seen anything like it. Now, 
What I want to know is what Dr. Ellis did that they stuck him in the bowels of the building. That's where professors get sent right before they're booted or quit. When they've got tenure, it's hard to get rid of them. So they banish them to the belly of the basement and they're never heard from again or they resign. So what do you know about Professor Ellis? I wasn't sure how to answer. The truth was I didn't know anything, but I wasn't sure what I should say to someone so eager to share what she knows with others. I've seen his picture. He looks kind of disheveled. That was an understatement. In the GYSP photo directory, he was a mess. Big, bushy eyebrows, hair in need of a comb and cut, rumpled shirt, looked like he hadn't shaved in a couple days. But I guess they wouldn't put you in the basement just for needing a makeover. Nah, it must be more than something a shave and a haircut would take care of. Run along to your meeting now, but... Do let me know if you find out anything, won't you, my child? She winked and pointed in the direction of the elevator. I'm coming with you. I was so glad I hugged her. The Zoological Museum was an old building with an elaborate brass and marble staircase that wound through its center. The elevator was a wrought iron cage that ran through the middle of the staircase. We got in and the screen door screeched in protest, or warning, as I pulled it shut. I pushed the B for basement button. The elevator started to move with a thunk and a bounce. Then it lurched downward. An arrow above the door indicated the levels as we passed them. B was actually down three levels, I could see the two lower levels below the ground floor through the mesh of the elevator cage, rows of shelves holding containers and file cabinets going past, lit by cold fluorescent lights. The staircase stopped at the lower level, too, so the only way to reach the basement was the cage in which we were riding. We landed on the basement level with a squeal and jerked to a stop. I yanked open the door and hoped no one would be calling the elevator to another floor in case we needed to beat a hasty retreat. The corridor was about 15 feet wide, lit by the same kind of fluorescence as the other lower levels, although some of the bulbs hissed and buzzed like they had a short or were just about to burn out. On either side of the hallway were steel shelves a few feet deep, holding glass containers of various sizes. I could make out a yellow liquid in the containers and the smell of formaldehyde. A mildewing mop in a bucket was leaned up against one of the walls. I could see shards of glass on the floor by the bucket. A jar with a jagged top was discarded in a metal waste paper can nearby. I didn't dare look to see what else the garbage can held. Our chat with the security guard had already made me late for my appointment, but I lingered alongside Delani as we peeked at some of the intact jars while we slowly made our way toward the huge glass tank at the end of the corridor. The security guard was right. 
It was sad, this parade of strange creatures floating in the yellow-green jars, pale and lifeless, unfinished creations of juxtaposed species. We saw a container labeled Hybrid Experiment 30145, Pan troglodytes with Pandian hyliatus, three months short of partuition, extracted. That is a chimpanzee mated with an osprey. Look, this one says, Hybrid Experiment 30156, Canis lupus familiaris with Gaudus morhua, four days short of parturition, extracted. A beagle with a cod. There were also insects, millipede with honeybee, earthworm with dragonfly, and one that made me want to keep my head down and sprint toward the giant squid in Dr. Ellis's office, the hybrid experiment 30267, Theraphosa blondi with Gymnogyps californianus, 36 days from partuition, extracted. But Delani paused in front of it. She looked awestruck. Even though it's nowhere near its full-grown size, you can probably already tell that the Theraphosa blondi is the world's largest spider. They live in Argentina. They eat birds. They don't mate with them. The fetus was already hairy, its wiry fuzz floating in the liquid. Bony wings were folded against its striped back. The bird is a condor and, and was extinct in the wild, but it's starting to come back. We walked towards the container holding the squid and paused at the end nearest the squid's gelatinous, bulbous head. A milky eye the size of my face was open but unseeing. The tank filled the width of the hallway and was about six feet tall and four feet deep. The squid's stringy tentacles were looped and snarled into a mass like angel hair pasta. At least this one was already dead when they found it, unless they're not telling us something. How can you tell? I was speaking to Delani, but I kept my eyes on the squid, making sure it wouldn't wink its pale glassy eye at me and start unfurling its tentacles. No living giant squid had ever been seen until just about 10 years ago off the coast of Newfoundland. A scientist there was obsessed about seeing one alive. He built a special lab so he'd be ready when one finally showed its face, or eye, or even a tentacle or two. He got lucky, and one brave or lost giant squid swam past. One more showed up a few years later. Until these two, the only specimens humans have ever seen have been dead. They've floated to the surface or washed ashore. Still, it's an amazing creature, don't you think? I think this squid is one of the reasons I'm terrified of water. I imagined a 50-foot-long tentacle wrapping around my leg and pulling me down, down, down. I stopped myself. Sweat was starting to bead on my forehead. But this one isn't a hybrid. Seems strange when everything else preserved down here is some failed warped experiment. What if they're not failed? What if the experimenters didn't actually care about whether or not their creations were viable? What if they just wanted to see what the hybrid looked like or what happened as it developed? The labels all say extracted. They were removed, not stillborn. Oh, wow. You're right. Forcing myself to look back at the jars on the shelves, 
I noticed jars behind the ones visible at the front of the shelving. I pulled my sweatshirt sleeve over my hand so I wouldn't have to make direct contact and nudged the closest giant tarantula, giant bird, a little to one side. Behind it was a row of jars, like sodas lined up in a see-through vending machine. Each one held a smaller and smaller specimen. The labels verified that each one was younger, slightly less developed, not as far along in its gestation. It was true for the other hybrid creatures as well. These jars hold progressions, not necessarily things that didn't work. You think a giant tarantula is out there somewhere that can fly? I sure hope not. The experimenters who did this were interested in watching the growth of the creatures they made to see how their hybrids developed. Hybrids between animals and insects that are earthborn, airborne, and waterborne. Mary Healy was right. They cross realms. They never would be together naturally, even if they could mate in real life. The Grigoris put this together, then harvested them from whatever animals were carrying these weird offspring and preserved them. But why? To study them? For sure. That's why these are in a university museum, just like those mummified babies in the archaeological museum. This isn't just some eccentric's collection of curiosities. It's a collection for study. But what are they trying to find out? And how do a bunch of circus freak animals help them do that? This squid is a hybrid, too. Look. She pointed to a place just below the squid's globular head. Nubby proto-wings. There must be a label here. Yep. Hybrid experiment 30252. Architeuthis with penguinus impenis. Three weeks short of partuition. Extracted. That means they had a living giant squid to experiment on. Or more than one. And they killed it, or them, to do this. They crossed it with a great auk. Those birds have been extinct, at least as far as the rest of the world knows, since the mid-1800s. So the Gregories, who we are pretty sure are Nephilim, are themselves hybrids, right? Right. Heavenly plus earthly. And they're making other hybrids, or did in the past. Apparently. And harvested the fetuses at different points in their development and preserved them for study. Yes. They were looking for something. It wasn't to see if they could do it, whether or not they could make a monkey dog or a giant squid that could fly. What they were looking for was something else. Which is? I had almost forgotten I was here to see Dr. Ellis. We looked at the door. Kendrick Ellis, Ph.D., Professor of Missions, was written with a ballpoint pen on a yellow sticky note on the door. On the wall to the side of the door was a proper room nameplate that read, Broom Closet LL3 Number 4. A felt-tip marker X was drawn over it. Please stay with me. Oh, yeah. Dr. Ellis stood in the doorway His gray hair puffed out like dust bunnies had settled on his head. His bushy eyebrows seemed to sprout even more wild hairs than I had noticed when looking at the faculty photo. 
They had joined forces, making one long, hairy caterpillar that rested on his brow as he observed not just me, but also Delani standing in front of him. His forehead relaxed and the caterpillar was bisected, each half finding a resting spot above a bright hazel eye. The unification and division of his eyebrows had knocked his wire-rimmed glasses a kilter, and he readjusted them so they sat evenly across the bridge of his nose. He wiped his right hand on the patched sleeve of his faded tweed jacket and extended it in a warm handshake to each of us. How fortuitous! Delaney, I'm so glad you're here, too. I was going to invite you for early tomorrow. I usually try to have these conversations one student at a time for reasons of confidentiality, but if the two of you are comfortable being in here on this together, it will save us precious time, are you? Yes. Uh, Come in then, please. He looked back into his office, which did seem like it was still a broom closet, ran a large hand through the right side of his moppy hair, making it look even more like a fluffed-up Brillo pad. The scraping sound we heard must have been one of the folding metal chairs we could see crammed into the space between the wall and his desk. Behind his desk was an upside-down milk crate with the pillow placed on top of it. He looked at his metal waste paper basket, which was heaped with crumpled papers. Ah! He raised an index finger to the side of his head like a light bulb had flicked on. He picked up the garbage pail and squeezed past us. Gently, he emptied the contents onto the floor in front of the squid. Sorry for the mess, Herman. Uh, Watch these for me, will you? It's not alive, is it? Oh, no, uh... But he once was, and they're my company down here, so I try to be respectful even if the Gregories weren't. That they made new creatures isn't the problem. Look at the creator's sense of adventure and creativity in making animals. The rhinoceros, the, the aardvark, uh, the duck-billed platypus. That's my favorite animal! Oh, and a great choice it is. Lovely creature, but these, uh, these were made just to be used. Tragic. His words made me hopeful. Maybe he could tell us more about the strange creatures, but surely that wasn't why he wanted to see us. Come in, come in. No, no, wait. I must go first. Uh, Please excuse my ungentlemanly behavior. He set out the metal chair and pillow-topped crate for us to sit on, squeezed behind the desk, and gestured for us to be seated before he took a seat on the overturned garbage pail. The room held cleaning supplies as well as some binders, manila file folders, stacks of papers, and books that Dr. Ellis must have brought into the room. Uh, Let me come to the point quickly. How much do each of you know about your own backgrounds? Backgrounds? Like ethnic identity? Uh, I mean parentage, uh, families of origin. I know my parents' names and my grandparents' names, although they're all dead now. My condolences, of course. Uh, Delani, your mother has passed as well, I believe? Yes, sir. Uh, What I'm about to say may come as a surprise, but it's important that you each understand what I'm telling you. It may have everything to do with why you're here. In a broom closet in the basement of a museum off a hallway filled with preserved hybrid animals? In the Gregory Young Scholars Program, and why your lives may be in danger. Although the fact that you're still here in week number three leads me to believe that uh, you're worth more to them alive than dead. He rested his chin on his fingers and looked off toward the upper corner of the minuscule room, 
ruminating, as if he had forgotten that we were still there and that our lives were in danger. Dr. Ellis? Uh, My apologies. Uh, There's just so much to consider. He wrestled himself back to this conversation, running both his hands through the sides of his hair, smoothing out the mop, and then straightening his glasses again. Uh, These conversations get no easier, I'm afraid. But I must say, I'm hopeful. I I remain hopeful. About what, Dr. Ellis? Why, about the abilities of young people such as yourselves. He was evidently so moved by our potential that he took a handkerchief from his pocket and wiped a tear from his eyes. He repositioned his glasses, returned the handkerchief, and began again. My work in missions afforded me the opportunity to travel the world, not only to study the spread of the world's major religions, but also to pursue another quite crucial interest of mine concerning the adoption of infants and young children. You were both adopted, I'm sure, by parents who loved you very much and were very proud of you. He took two manila folders that were poking him in the shoulder down from the shelf next to him and put them in front of us on the desk. I apologize for the abruptness of this announcement, if this comes as news to you, and we will return to the subject of your adoptions in a moment. But first, I must tell you more about my work so that you will understand the context in which we find ourselves. That makes sense. Being adopted, my mother used to look at me sometimes like I was a complete stranger. I'd even catch her saying under her breath, where did you really come from? My dad would tell her to be quiet. My head was spinning with questions, and images flashed in my mind like photographs in a digital slideshow. Me as a young child blowing out birthday candles on a cake as my mom looks on from behind. My father pushing me in the stroller at the zoo, a helium balloon tied to my pudgy wrist. My mother, father, and I smiling at the camera in front of our Christmas tree, the last photo taken of all of us together before my parents were killed. Dr. Ellis was talking, and I shook the images away, trying to focus on what he was saying. He was asking a question. Do you understand about the connection between the Gregories and the Nephilim? Delani and I looked at each other. Should we say something or not? I understand your reticence. The Gregories are not to be trifled with. But now we find ourselves in a situation not of our own making, but perhaps one which we have been uniquely equipped to address. You do understand the Grigori Nephilim connection. One of his fuzzy eyebrows was raised inquiringly. I realized we had to respond to this question if we were going to get any answers. We suspect that Dr. Grigori, his family, and perhaps several of those associated with the GYSP are Nephilim. He must have heard the hesitancy in my voice that signaled an unstated question to him. Are you one of them? He reached into the pocket on the inside of his jacket, then opened his hand to reveal what he had withdrawn. A small silver token bearing the same angel as on Miss Leora's and my locket. This is mine, given me by my father. All three of us looked at the token in his open palm, He closed his hand over it and returned it to his pocket. I am a mere mortal, happily so. Several of us regular human beings hold positions on the GYSP staff. We have our uses. 
As you can see by our present surroundings, I'm not currently finding favor in Dr. Vadim Grigori's sight. I accidentally wandered into a meeting concerning archaeoacoustics that Dr. Grigori was holding with some of the faculty members in a room near my old office. Although I overheard nothing of any utility on that occasion, I was informed that my office had been relocated. I am being punished, but with only a slap on the wrist at this point. In characteristic nephilistic style, they are keeping me close to see if they can get more information from me before disposing of me. Disposing of you? It is a possibility, so I, too, am wary and cautious. But remember, although the Nephilim are powerful, they are not omniscient. They need to learn and gather information like the rest of us. What if they've bugged your office? As I said it, I realized that if they were listening, it would be too late. I don't think so, but tomorrow may be different. A maintenance team is scheduled to do some wiring work, which I assume means installing cameras and listening devices. I've been down here two weeks, and so far I think the place is secure. The Nephilim are ruthless, but they still have to deal with the physical realm, and university bureaucracy and tedious work orders apply to them, too. I hoped he was right. The more powerful of the Nephilim are members of the Grigori family and its many tendrils, known by various cognate names. Igrigor, Grigor are a couple of them. My study of missions traced the spread of religions, but allowed me to monitor Nephilim activity as well. Nephilim are interested in all the major religious traditions, whatever works for good in the world, or, as the Nephilim would say, promotes the causes and goals of the one they call the enemy. Love, freedom, the betterment of others, justice, mercy. But they are extremely interested in Christianity, because... For a long time, they've thought that Jesus was one of them. Jesus? A Nephil? Think about it. Human mother, divine father, and the Holy Spirit, the one by whom Mary is with child, according to the Gospel of Matthew, has been imagined in different ways, sometimes as a dove, as you've seen in so many paintings of the Annunciation, or as a spectacular light, or, and this is important, as an angel or an angelic being. But there's a huge difference between the story of how Nephilim came into existence and how Jesus was born. Uh, several differences, of course. One striking difference is that no uh, uh, sexual uh, congress took place between Mary and the Holy Spirit. The Bible is quite insistent upon that point. Nothing physical went on, though a physical pregnancy and baby resulted. And Mary had a say in it. No angel just swooped in, taking her like in the Watcher story. Yes, she gives her consent. Free choice is involved. But there are two differences the Nephilim find most unnerving and fascinating. First, the results of the birth of baby Jesus are good, unlike the legacy of the Watchers. The Watchers cause a dissemination of violence, war, greed for wealth, control over others. Jesus brings a message of peace. Forgiveness, second chances, new beginnings. This quite unnerved the Nephilim. It seemed to them that the one they call the enemy had used the very same tactics the Watchers had, joining with humans and creating a hybrid, but to the opposite effect, an effect which could ultimately defeat the Nephilim. But doesn't traditional Christian doctrine say that Jesus was completely human and completely divine, not half and half, 
He's not supposed to be just a mixture, right? Correct. That's the other thing the Nephilim are obsessed with. Nephilim face a problem. The purest ones, the ones they call peerless, are 50% human and 50% angelic. More angelic, and they tend to return to the side of the Holy One. More human, and they're not as strong as the half-and-halves. But you've heard how organ transplant recipients sometimes reject their new organs, even when they're a perfect match? Oh, Nephilim were never meant to exist. Angels and humans weren't supposed to mix like that, so it doesn't work after a while. I thought with a shudder of Xanthi, her deteriorating flesh, the duophysite's fear of disintegrative discoinherence, and Brother Joseph's research. That's right. Uh, they can co-inhere for a while, but with time and the stresses of Earth's conditions on the angelic nature, the cohesion eventually breaks down. It literally tears Nephilim up. They rupture. It's one of the reasons they can't live forever, despite their angelic genes. That's partially why Jesus, divine and human in one being, is so interesting to them. Some Nephilim believe Jesus had some secret way he was able to keep his two natures together, some means of guaranteeing internal co-inherence. Most Nephilim believe that the reason Jesus went to the cross was not the ultimate act of self-sacrificial love for others, as Christians teach, but a way to keep his secret. Take it with him to the tomb. Secrecy. Subterfuge. The way a true Nephil would do it. That's what I would have learned in Nephilim Sunday school? Fascinating. They must be looking for a cure. Antimony. No wonder it's so important to the Gregorius to control the world's supply. We've seen them snort it. You've seen it? Uh, they're getting sloppy, or else quite comfortable around you. Did you know Newton called Antimony hermaphrodite? Can you guess why? It's not about it somehow having both male and female qualities. He was describing its ability to help two different things stick together— Remain unified. Very good. You probably also know that antimony is dangerous, poisonous if taken in too great a dose or for too long. So they're looking for something else, too. Some other way to cure themselves. That's why all these specimens are here. She popped up off her milk crate and flung open the door. Dr. Ellis and I followed. Delani inspected the labels on the jars again. Extracted. 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 I thought extracted on the labels meant they were extracted from the womb or wherever they were made, but extracted means something was extracted from them. The Grigoris took something from them, something they hoped would shed light on how to keep two things not made to be together, together. The mummified Eliot babies in the archaeology museum and what Dr. Kaleo said, can they even in death give life? This is why my work with adoptions is so important. Nephilim aren't interested solely in dead Eliud. What are you saying? Based on modern genetic theory, we think that Eliud carry recessive and dominant traits from their Nephilim parents. This means Nephilim parents give birth to children, some of whom they can immediately tell are like them, look like them, will develop like them, are for all intents and purposes Nephilim. They also give birth to offspring who look like regular human children, who show no signs of being Nephilim. 
These are the children Nephilim call Eliud, to distinguish them from the ones they call Nephilim. We're not sure how they distinguish between the two categories with infants, since so much of what seems to be Nephilistic develops later. For example, wings, uh, the most obvious, don't begin to develop until a child is about two. I found myself thinking of the images I had seen around the Div School, in the common room, in the reception area to the dean's office, paintings of angels cradling newborns, staring into their eyes. I thought they were guardian angels gazing lovingly at the infants entrusted to their benevolent care. They weren't guardian angels. They were Nephilim, examining their children for signs that they were either Nephilim or Eliud. I know how they do it. They look into their baby's eyes. Nephilim eyes are different, right? Not just slightly bigger, but more luminous. They must look into their newborn baby's eyes and be able to tell. I thought of my eye exam and started to shiver, although the tiny office was stuffy and warm. We have had reports of Nephilim eyes actually emitting light, which could be reflected back at them if the retina of a newborn had a particular characteristic. Such as a metallic quality? Like being golden? For centuries, Nephilim simply cast off their Eliud children. They were disgusted by offspring who appeared to be merely human. They saw them as a waste and a burden. They killed them outright or exposed them. Sometimes they sold them into slavery, figuring they could get something out of their misfortune to have produced a merely. Some people from early on knew this was happening and, and tried to rescue the Eliudes, uh, sometimes finding the exposed ones and taking them, uh, sometimes buying them back from the slavers. What did they do with the Eliud they rescued? Most of the time, we tried to resettle them with adoptive families who would mainstream them as much as possible, treat them like normal human children. For those who developed Nephilistic traits later, they either had surgery performed, such as the removal of nascent wings, or tried to convince them to join our side, use their powers for good. I felt a tingling sensation in my back. Is that what my scars were from? And Josh's? Our most successful efforts in Eliud rescue began in the 1860s. We founded Le Société pour le Refuge des Enfants Iliudiques, or S-P-R-E-E, -E, which we called by its acronym SPREE. The angel I showed you is our logo, although we don't show it to people outside the society. SPREE? I've heard of that. It's a fresh air society, right? An organization that gets children out of the city and into nature. I went on one of their outings once. It was a day on a farm to learn more about animals. It's one of the reasons I love animals so much. I was pretty little, maybe four or five years old. I'm sure it was Spree. Spree was the perfect cover. It started in Paris, but we opened offices in other cities and countries as well. Sometimes we took children just for enrichment, a time for them to enjoy nature, be with other children like themselves. Sometimes that's how we connected them with their adoptive parents. Elliot children would be taken by Spree out into a forest or a park or a farm where they would be given to their new families. We didn't have enough adoptive parents for all the Elliot, unfortunately, so we also founded what we call sanctuaries, group home facilities where several Elliot children could live together in a secure and safe environment with some adult caretakers. 
Too many children who may exhibit nephilistic features all living together in one place would certainly attract attention. Therefore, sanctuaries are located in rather remote locations where the children have relative freedom, so long as they remain in the sanctuary. Unfortunately, we haven't received communication from any of the sanctuaries recently, which worries me. It was a brilliant cover for our work. People who had no clue about our true mission loved the idea of getting babies and toddlers out of the crowded cities, especially the highly industrialized ones. And no one paid close enough attention to notice if fewer children came back or if bundles of joy had been replaced by bundles of blankets. Spree became essential after the 1880s and Gregor Mendel's work with recessive traits. The Gregories became quite interested in this work and realized that they had been destroying or abandoning offspring who may be carrying recessive nephilistic traits, traits that wouldn't show up until future generations. They leapt into action, trying to compile records of which Nephilim had reproduced, which offspring had been labeled Eliud, and what had been done with them. They started trying to find and recover Eliud children and descendants. Sometimes they went on raids and used violence to try to get them back. We noticed that several of our spree families are the victims of accidents in which parents are killed and children go missing or are orphaned and are subsequently taken by Nephilim parents. My skin was cold. Is this what happened to my parents? But Nephilim don't want normal children, and some Eliud never exhibit Nephilim tendencies, right? What do they do with the more human-seeming Eliud? We fear the Nephilim may still regard them as useful, either for breeding, for study, or more specifically for extractions. They may think there is something produced in the bodies of Eliud that they can harvest and use to prevent disintegration. I felt nauseated and on fire, like I suddenly had a sense of purpose. I felt ready to strike out, do something, act, even if I had no idea what that something should be. The Nephilim use other methods in addition to violent ones to try to find and regain Eliud children. The Gregory Young Scholars Program. Yes. The fact that you are here means you have been identified by the Grigori as Eliud. They are testing you and cultivating you to see if and how you can be useful. Why don't they just do genetic testing or see if we've had surgery to remove wings or some other nephilistic tendency? Maybe they're trying to be more subtle than just rounding us up and sticking cotton swabs in our mouth. If they did that, we would all figure out that they're looking for something, and we might not be as cooperative. They're obviously trying to lure us in, woo us with the extravagant prizes they're giving us, right? Good point. I think I already know the answer, but just to be sure, Dr. Ellis, you think Delani and I really are Elliot, right? I will be happy to tell you for certain, but first I need your help. My heart sank. Even Dr. Ellis was using us bargaining with us, just like the Gregories. We were wrong to trust him after all. Suddenly I felt resolute. We can be manipulative too, do what we need to do to get what we want. I pasted a smile on my face and tried to ooze cooperativeness. Okay, what is it that Delani and I can help you with? What would most change your life for the better right now? 
His fuzzy eyebrows rose, as if surprised by the question. Well, that's much more than I had anticipated. I was going to ask for something simple, but if you really want to change my life, what would or could perhaps uh, help me with my heart's desire would be your help with with my (laughs) uh, appearance. Your appearance? Really? We were talking about matters of life and death, about whether or not Delani and I were some kind of genetic freaks, and Dr. Ellis was worried about what he looked like? Sheesh, no wonder Nephilim thought humans were ridiculous. And yet, if this is what it would take to get us what we needed, maybe I had better pay attention. You met Ms. Mary Healy when you came into the museum. She's a good woman and one of the most beautiful creatures God ever put into shoe leather. But she won't give me the time of day. Just looks at me with pity. She thinks you're down here because you're either going to be fired or quit. Maybe she does feel bad for you. She is definitely curious about you. She asked us to tell her about you. But, yes, a little makeover magic might help. Show her you're thinking of her, making an effort. Crackers. I sounded like Aunt Alina. There are no homely professors, just lazy ones. Rats. He was in love, not mean. Okay, so if we give you a makeover, you'll tell us if we're Elliot? Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, And, of course, if you go get the files. What are those, the folders you put on your desk? Uh, These aren't your files. What are they, then? In here? Uh, Poetry I've been writing for Miss Mary Healy. Uh, Want to hear some? He opened the top folder and launched in. Oh, my sweet Mary, I dare no longer tarry, for to you my love to carry, but I grow wary. Because I am so hairy, I finished the poem in my frustrated little mind. Dr. Ellis, I'm very sorry to interrupt, but please tell us what you mean by get the files. Uh, Yes, uh, from my old office. I couldn't risk bringing them with me, with those harmonic-clad flying monkey goons the Gregorius sent to watch over me. They came and told me that my office was being relocated. Uh, I grabbed the few books, binders, and file folders I could carry and was ushered down here. So your files, our files, are still in the other building? Yes, uh, thankfully I had the foresight to hide them. I never keep spree records with other files. Uh, They're in the acoustic panels above my old desk. Just get those and bring them here. I I, I can tell you more about yourselves. All the spree children. I have the records going all the way back. I looked at Delani, who nodded her consent. Okay, we get the files and some scissors and uh, makeover equipment and come back. Where exactly is your old office? He told us and looked relieved. I think more about the makeover than anything else. Maybe Antolino was right and beauty tips really could change lives. But as Delani and I got back into the rickety cage that would take us back up to daylight, I realized who now inhabited Dr. Ellis' old office. Dr. Beakley. 
professor of historical philology, who gave us a lecture about ancient languages and was the most boring person I had ever heard drone on about anything. How were we going to get into his office? And how would we explain why we needed to get up into the acoustic tiles on the ceiling? We needed a plan and the help of our friends. is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whiffenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whiffenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 11 featured, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Janice Jobson as Mary Healy, and Rob King as Dr. Ellis. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend and give it a rating or review so others can find it too. We'll be back soon with Episode 12.